What this always comes down to is that individuals matter. And you saw that very much in 2020. You've seen it in the witnesses before the committee who stood up to the pressure. You saw it with Mike Pence. At the end of the day, this does come down to individuals fulfilling their oaths and their roles under the Constitution. That's longtime Republican election lawyer Ben Ginsburg reflecting on how close former President Donald Trump came to upending the 2020 election and what ultimately stopped him. I'm Margaret Hoover. This is the Firing Line podcast. I spoke to Ginsburg shortly after he testified as a key witness before the House Select Committee investigating the events of January 6th. And in no instance did a court find that the charges of fraud were real. Ben Ginsburg has represented top Republicans in election litigation for decades, including as national counsel for George W. Bush during the 2000 recount battle with Al Gore. I accept the finality of this outcome. And tonight, for the sake of our unity as a people and the strength of our democracy, I offer my concession. At the time, did you think that Al Gore was trying to steal the election? Look, I think that any candidate within 537 votes has a right, if not an obligation, to his or her supporters to be sure that the count is accurate. But when Donald Trump cast doubt on democracy in 2020, Ginsburg decided it was time to speak out against his own party in defense of election integrity. I did not want to be in the position of having to represent uh, those charges. As the select committee builds its case, I asked Ginsburg to assess the possibility that former President Trump will be prosecuted. If you're going to proceed with a prosecution like that, the evidence has to be rock solid. And how the election reforms that he'd like to see could prevent another crisis. Before it's too late. So if you had to put your money on 2024, do we pull through? Ben Ginsburg, welcome to Firing Line. Thank you. You've been a Republican election lawyer for decades. <laughs> Perhaps most famously known for your role in the Bush v. Gore recount in Florida in 2000. And you have even provided some support to the Trump campaign in 2020 through your former law firm, Jones Day. Most recently, you have become a vocal opponent from the Republican side of former President Trump's big lie. And you testified in the select committee's January 6th hearings recently. Why was it important for you to add your voice and expertise to those hearings? I had spent my career working in elections. I believe in American elections. All the clients I had for all those years believed in American elections and the results. It's a basic part of the fabric of this country peaceful transfer of power. The winner gets to win. It's too bad for the loser. You try again. Donald Trump really took elections to a different level by saying they were fraudulent and rigged. I've worked in the polling places ever since I began uh, practicing law and representing Republicans looking for fraud. We found it on occasion. Uh, it was prosecuted. It is important to look for it. But at this point in time, you have to be honest about the evidence. 
that's been compiled over the last four decades, which is there is not systematic fraud uh, enough to affect the outcome of all but a small number of elections. And to say that our elections are fraudulent and rigged and to cause a sizable proportion of the American public to now not believe is our elections are accurate is tremendously damaging to the democracy and something that uh, I felt required uh, really the telling the truth about what was found and pointing out, uh, based on my 40 years of practicing election law, that our elections are accurate. Through the select committee's hearings, we've learned that multiple people, including Attorney General Bill Barr, told President Trump that the claims of election fraud had no merit. We've heard about the pressure campaign that was mounted against Vice President Pence to overturn President Trump's defeat. We have learned about President Trump's efforts to pressure state officials to overturn the results of elections in their states. What do you see as the key purpose of these hearings by the select committee? They're doing two things. Number one, they're setting out the historical record in a very systematic way, which is tremendously important for us. And number two, they're showing that the Trump efforts really were designed to override the popular vote in the election. And so by presenting this evidence in the way that they have, it's something for all Americans to be able to look at to, again, recognize that our electoral system does work and that the peaceful transfer of power is the key to the democracy. Some members of the select committee have indicated that they believe there is enough evidence to warrant Justice Department investigation of former President Trump. In the course of the select committee's work to obtain information from Mr. Eastman, we have had occasion to present evidence to a federal judge. The judge evaluated the facts, and he reached the conclusion that President Trump's efforts to pressure Vice President Pence to act illegally by refusing to count electoral votes likely violated two federal criminal statutes. According to Federal District Judge David Carter, former President Trump and others likely violated multiple federal laws by engaging in this scheme, including conspiracy to defraud the United States. So I have heard you say that you are doubtful that any of this will end in a prosecution because it would take too long, it would further divide the country. But I, I haven't heard you say that you believe that Trump is innocent. And my question for you is regardless of whether you think it will happen or will not happen, have you as a lawyer seen evidence emerge that could support a prosecution? I think that the evidence is still not complete to warrant a prosecution, that the piece of evidence that's needed and the select committee may well produce it is for Donald Trump to be sp saying specifically to the people who broke into the Capitol, who were the insurrectionists, we want you to go do this. I want you to go do this. And so far, that key piece of evidence has not emerged. Now, it may be that the select committee has evidence of Trump's activities during the time that the Capitol was being broken into. 
I hope that the select committee has talked to the Navy steward who serves him Diet Cokes and Hershey bars to see what he was saying. But it's that uh, piece of evidence, that indication of his actions and frame of mind that's necessary. To make the case, they have to show that his intent was to violate the law. And I think that evidence of intent has not yet come out. So do you mean like a one-on-one conversation that President Trump is having with individuals who breached the Capitol? Because he did stand before a crowd of individuals who then later breached the Capitol and pointed to the Capitol and said, fight like hell. If he had said, I want you to go down there, break into the Capitol, stop the proceedings of the Electoral College, then that would be the necessary piece of evidence. But but that's not what he said before the Capitol. And in the 12-page explanation uh, that he put out recently about why he thought the election was stolen, you could see the elements of a legal defense. In other words, he thought that the election was stolen. He thought that the certifications were improper so that he was acting in that core belief. So that's why the testimony of the committee that uh, he was told and that he knew that he lost the election fair and square becomes an important building block in that evidence of intent. So are you saying that legally it matters if Trump believes his false claims about fraud? Yes, as a legal matter, it does. Is certainly not to say that he shouldn't be roundly criticized and exposed for the heinous plot he's he's put on the country. Uh, that Can you explain why it matters legally, whether he believes his claims or not? Well, because the way the law is written is that it's an intent crime. You have to show that he had the intent to violate the law. Attorney General Merrick Garland has said that he and his top prosecutors are watching the proceedings carefully. And there is new polling from ABC and Ipsos that suggests 58% of Americans agree that Trump should be prosecuted. Some of the potential charges that observers have discussed include sedition, insurrection, obstruction, wire fraud. Of course, that's thanks to the $250 million that Trump and his allies fundraised off of the false claim that the election was stolen. Do you see any evidence for any of those crimes? Well, there is the emerging evidence for some of them. But again, I don't think the case is complete. I think the select committee certainly has the ability to investigate that. But as you pointed out, it really is the Department of Justice that has to make the call. And once it gets to the Department of Justice, there's also such a thing as prosecutorial discretion, which is even if the crime was committed, is it in the best interests of the country to keep the polarization sort of thriving uh, for something that would take many, many years to resolve? And you come down on the side that a prosecution of a former president is undesirable. A prosecution of a former president of the United States is about as serious as it gets in terms of a criminal trial. So that if you're going to proceed with a prosecution like that, the evidence has to be rock solid. And to date, at least in what's been in the public record, it is not rock solid. 
so that taking a defeat for a prosecution of a former president would reward terrible behavior. So you've got both the, is it good policy to keep the country as divided as it would be in a prosecution, plus uh, whether the evidence is there to be sure that you win that case. The committee is reportedly divided about whether to submit a criminal referral to the Justice Department. Uh, A referral, of course, carries no legal weight, but it could increase public pressure on prosecutors. Based on what you've seen so far, do you think they should make a referral? Well, I think the committee will make that judgment. Um, I think that an attorney general, especially one with Merrick Garland's uh, stated purpose of depoliticizing the Justice Department, is going to have to take a really careful look on that. So what the select committee does uh, is, I think, uh, not uh, necessarily important to the way an attorney general makes a decision. One of the key figures that has emerged uh, throughout the course of the hearings from the select committee is the lawyer John Eastman, who advised President Trump that Vice President Pence could, in fact, reject the electoral votes, despite, according to witnesses, knowing that his legal case was dubious. Here's White House lawyer to Vice President Pence, Greg Jacob. We had an extended discussion, an hour and a half to two hours on January 5th. Um, And when I pressed him uh, on the point, I said, John, if the vice president did what you were asking him to do, we would lose nine to nothing in the Supreme Court, wouldn't we? Um, And he initially started, well, I think maybe you would lose only seven to two. Um, And after some further discussion, acknowledged, well, yeah, you're right. We would lose nine nothing. Ben, what do you think of John Eastman's role in the events of January 6th? John Eastman obviously played a big role. Uh, There's evidence that he was asked to start trying to make this case in the immediate aftermath of the election. Uh, He stuck with it, despite hearing from many other lawyers that that it was not an appropriate case to bring and that the case had no merit. Yet he was the one who continued to tell former President Trump what he wanted to hear and to breathe life into the whole uh, series of events that culminated in the break-in and desecration of the Capitol. What can you tell me about Eastman? I mean, Eastman was heretofore a respected conservative legal mind. Yeah. Um, You know, to me, the tale of John Eastman, who I've known a bit over the years, who I always thought was a very smart, conservative uh, lawyer, clerked on the Supreme Court, clerked for Judge Ludic on the Fourth Circuit, um, now presents an object lesson to young lawyers, which is basically there can come a time in your legal career in which you get so wrapped up in the agenda of your client that you kind of forget about truth, justice in the American way, which is what you're supposed to have as your top priority. And you do things that, that uh, you should not do, that, that, are, that are really contrary to the spirit of the law. And it is that reason that lawyers owe an allegiance to the bar in which they practice to not bring cases 
uh, like John Eastman was preparing. As a, as a legal matter, John Eastman never presented those issues in court. Uh, so he's probably not subject to bar sanctions. But nonetheless, it is an argument that lacked merit to such a degree that uh, he should have pulled the plug on it long before it got to the stage it did. We learned from the committee that Eastman actually sought a presidential pardon in the days after January 6th. Why do you think Eastman thought he would need a pardon? Well, I think uh, he saw that the coup attempt failed and he knew what his role was in it. Um, I, I think that when you're in the tunnel enough to bring a case like or to suggest a legal theory like he suggested, then you're probably also thinking that uh, when your political opponents are in power, they're going to come down like the wrath of God on you, which he was pretty correct about. Um, and so he asked for a pardon. You just called it a coup attempt. Um, there are many conservative scholars and Republican observers who have been cautious about using that word. Was it a coup? A coup attempt? It was an attempt to basically vitiate the popular vote of the people. And to not install as the next president of the United States, the person who won the popular vote, which was the law in all the states uh, on the day of the election. So the word coup is going to be bandied about. The, the basic point is, is that the actions that Donald Trump and his supporters took were contrary to the notion that the winner of the vote as decided by the states, gets installed in office. You spent decades working on behalf of Republicans, including presidential races, congressional campaigns, redistricting efforts. Your former law firm, Jones Day, also did work for Trump in 2016-2020. But in the run-up to the election in 2020, you stepped out against the GOP nominee because you believed Republicans were making unfounded claims that elections were being rigged. Was it difficult for you then? Sure. I loved practicing law. Uh, I hit the ripe old age of 70, so it's sort of an appropriate time. Uh, I did spend decades working for candidates in elections and uh, trying my best to uphold the process. Uh, and so the charges that President, former President Trump was making about the elections being rigged and fraudulent, I knew not to be correct. And uh, I did not want to be in the position of having to represent uh, those charges. Did you think you might have a special ability to persuade GOP election deniers of the truth because of your 40 years representing Republican candidates? Uh, <laughs> I guess that was something I would hope for. I, I hope it's worked. Republicans and conservatives uh, like me have always believed in the rule of law and seen the rule of law as a fundamental uh, part of the country. Donald Trump brought from Election Day onward more than 60 cases to challenge the results of elections. Those cases were all adjudicated. Half of them were adjudicated on the merits. 
14 of them were voluntarily dismissed by Trump forces. The rest were dismissed on procedural grounds. But the bottom line is Donald Trump had his day in court. And in what the violation of the rule of law was, is that he didn't accept the results in those cases. He continued to talk about uh, how the election was fraudulent and rigged. And the, the principle of the rule of law is that after you get your day in court, you have the right to bring the cases, but the principle is, is that you accept uh, the decisions and move on. Do you think you persuaded anyone? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I hope so. Um, one of the things that I thought was really important about the testimony was that I've done a lot of work with elections officials over the years. And uh, I was co-chair of a presidential commission on election administration uh, in 2013 and 2014, a bipartisan effort that did look at uh, election laws. We got to meet uh, a number, a huge number of election administrators and officials and we developed a great deal of admiration and respect for them. So the one of the effects of Donald Trump not accepting the rule of law is that election officials are being harassed and faced additional uh, prosecution. And so it is important to, to speak out on behalf of elections uh, officials. Did you receive any threats after your testimony? No, nothing we couldn't handle. I got more threats when I went out and talked during the Monica Lewinsky uh, hearings. Just to place you squarely in the narrative of Republican election lawyers. <laughs> right. um, just, just in case anybody wondered whether you were truly a partisan, um, in the best sense of the word. Uh, look, when you reflect on where the Republican Party is, how do you think we got here? Um, I think we got here um, really because the party was... Um, unsure of itself in which direction to take in 2016. And so that was a, um, that was a sort of wild and woolly primary in which uh, Donald Trump emerged. And who did uh, you support in 2015? Scott Walker. I was Scott Walker's counsel, then uh, took a seat in the broadcast booth starting in January, where I found it is, um, uh, it, it's much easier to be in the broadcast booth talking about elections than being down on the field getting hit. So um, I represented Scott Walker in 2015. Uh, and, I, you know, I supported him, but I think the party as a whole in its desires to win uh, sort of went along with Donald Trump, warts and all. And I think there was an inability or a lack of desire to see precisely what would come from that. In 2000, the Florida race was separated by 537 votes. There was a feeling amongst Republicans that I recall that Al Gore's rejection of the election result in Florida was destabilizing and unprecedented. Conservative columnist Jonah Goldberg even wrote in the National Review at the time, quote, this is a constitutional crisis. Al Gore has forced it. 
at the time, did you think that Al Gore was trying to steal the election? Uh, look, I think that any candidate within 537 votes has a right, if not an obligation to his or her supporters to be sure that the count is accurate. So in bringing the actions that he brought, I never felt that he was precipitating a constitutional crisis uh, or doing anything outside the bounds at, a, at all. Um I thought that some of the actions that he brought were puzzling uh, in a constitutional sense. And I think if the Supreme Court had not stepped in as it did, we might well have been in a constitutional crisis. But I don't believe that, um, although it certainly seemed traumatic at the time, uh, we, we faced one. On December 13th, 2000, the day after the Supreme Court effectively stopped the recount, Vice President Gore said, quote, I accept the finality of the outcome and tonight for the sake of our unity as a people and the strength of our democracy, I offer my concession. How do you reflect on that now? That it was absolutely the right thing to do. That I believe that if uh, George W. Bush had ended up down 537 votes, he would have done the same thing. Uh, I think that uh, both campaigns, having talked to Gore folks afterwards and having knowing what the Bush people were thinking was that that, that was the way the country works, that you need 50 percent plus one vote and that really tight elections will happen from time to time and you have to play by the rules. And that's what Richard Nixon did in 1960. It's what Abraham Lincoln talked about in the letter of the committee displayed in 1864. It's what John Adams did in 1800 in the first transfer of power when Adams's party controlled the Congress, the presidency, and maybe most importantly, the army. But he said that the peaceful transfer of power is what matters. And so only one president has not abided by that fundamental core concept of our country and our democracy, and that's Donald Trump. Politics makes strange bedfellows. How have Democrats reacted to working alongside you now? <laughs> I, I would hate to speak on behalf of all Democrats uh, in that. And I maintain my Republican affiliations. I've, I've not become a Democrat. Um, I just think that Donald Trump is wrong and the Republican Party is wrong on this issue of, of election denial. I mean, Democrats have <laughs> contributed their fair share to the course that resulted in January of 2021. And I'm talking about specifically uh, California's Democratic Senator Barbara Boxer, who in 2004 opened up what I think was this Pandora's box of first objecting to the electoral counting of the ballots. Um, she and then Representative Stephanie Tubbs of Ohio objected to Bush's 2004 electoral votes, vote count. Um, and then Democrats took that note and objected to the certification of Trump's election in 2017 on the House floor. So talk about sort of the responsibility that Democrats have had in this fraught moment for our democracy. Yeah, I mean, election denial, whether it's done by Republicans or Democrats, is dangerous. In 2004, the Democrats 
did the precursor of the Dominion uh, voting machines not being accurate. They complained in 2004 about what were called Diebold uh, machines tilting the election for George W. Bush. Same sort of theories that you saw in 2020. Stacey Abrams still has not conceded the Georgia governor's race from 2018. All of those actions serve to destabilize the notion that our elections are accurate. And so this is not, and it has happened on the Democratic side, certainly not to the extent and the way that that has happened in, in 2020, but it is a dangerous, uh, as you put it, Pandora's box that's been opened. I want to look ahead to the elections coming up in November 2022 and beyond. Um, so far in this election cycle, Republican primary voters have nominated more than 100 candidates to statewide offices who promote or support, believe in Trump's big lie, this notion that Joe Biden didn't win the election that Trump did and that Joe Biden is not a legitimate president. Um, candidates who support the big lie still in many cases have to face general election uh, voters in November. Some will win, some will lose. But the question I have is about whether our federal laws are currently strong enough to prevent elected officials who believe in the big lie from overturning the will of the people in 2024 when we vote for the president again? Uh, it is it is a great question and uh, really unfortunate that we have to ask it, but we certainly do have to ask it. So truth is, most of the elections issues that come up are state-based. Uh, and so even in 2024, the certification of the electors who win is going to be state-based. Um, it then comes to Washington, where one of the laws that does need changing and reform is something called the Electoral Count Act, which is how the Congress deals with the slates of electors that come to Washington. Uh, that's a law that was written in the 1880s. Um, they talked a little bit differently then. Uh, and so you're saying the language of the, the, uh, the Electoral Count Act may not be, uh, could stand to be modernized? Yeah, it could stand to be modernized. It's a little bit ambiguous in many, many places. And there were issues that were raised in 2020 that need addressing, and there's a modernization of the language that needs to be done. Let's talk about that. I mean, we're all trying to understand how vulnerable our democracy is right now. And one of the major guardrails that protected democracy on that day in January 6th was the response of former Vice President Mike Pence, who withstood what the select committee has illustrated was unprecedented pressure by former President Donald Trump to reject the certification of ballots. What do you think of what Mike Pence did that day? He stood up for the rule of law in a way that deserves great, great praise. Um, he made the decisions, obviously, under tremendous pressure. Uh, and uh, we should be thankful that we had him there and he acted as he did. And yet one of the planks of the Electoral Count Act that could stand to be clarified and modernized is the what role the vice president should have in the counting of the ballots of the electors from each state. What is the problem with what the Electoral Count Act says now about the role of the vice president? 
Well, I think the Electoral Count Act, even now, makes it clear that the vice president plays a basically ceremonial role of opening the envelopes and uh, passing them on. Uh, But since there was even a question raised about that, uh, it should be addressed and can be addressed in in reform. It seems to me that many Republicans have become focused on the opportunity to update the Electoral Count Act because they think about what might happen in 2024 when Vice President Kamala Harris is placed in perhaps the same role that Mike Pence was placed in at that moment. Uh, If it isn't reformed, what kind of impact could the events from 2021 have on Vice President Harris in 2024? (laughs) Well, who knows the answer to that? But your question points out why reform of the Electoral Count Act is really possible. It's because no one party can game out uh, to take advantage of a particular way of writing the law. Could be Kamala Harris in the chair. She might do something untoward. Uh, if the election really gets bollocked up and uh, neither candidate has a majority in the Electoral College, then it goes to the House of Representatives. But it's not a majority vote of the House of Representatives. It's by state delegation. And I don't think anybody feels really comfortable knowing which party is going to control more state delegations in January of 2025. So because there are ambiguities in the law, it is in both parties' interests to clarify it so you know the rules of the game. The current Electoral Count Act is written in a way that it takes just two members of Congress, one member of the Senate and one member of the House of Representatives, to raise an objection in the counting of the electoral ballots. Should the threshold for objection be raised from one member of each chamber? Yes, you pointed out the examples of 2004, 2005, and 2017, where just a couple of members managed to bollocks up the House. Uh, So I think there is uh, bipartisan agreement that the threshold for holding up a a state slate should be raised. Should be more than one, but what should it be? Well, I think that they will, the the members of the Senate and House will decide in their chambers whether that should be a supermajority of two-thirds, 60%, 50%, a third, 20%. I mean, I think there are lots of options on the table. The point is it should be more than one. Among the various strategies attempted to overturn the election, Trump and his allies wanted to reject the certification of the election and send the electors back to the states to get a new set of electors. Um, We heard in the hearings this week more details about President Trump's scheme to put forward fake electors in seven states that had voted for Biden. Is there a reform to the Electoral Count Act that would address this scenario? Well, the the real reform to that scenario is to make clear that a certification from a state under its proper processes is final. So that uh, I think among the options, most likely options, are a state before the election passes a law that says uh, an official, usually the governor, has to sign the certification. And if that certification is signed, that is presumptively accurate and will be counted by Congress. What if a 
Democratic governor in Pennsylvania refuses to certify a Republican win in that state. How would an updated Electoral Count Act address that scenario? Well, there are a couple of different ways to do it. Uh, And that actually is the most contentious issue of reform, which is whether you need another federal law to specifically address that scenario or whether uh, current law and the constitutional protections actually uh, provide enough power for federal courts to order the state official to do his or her job. So what's the answer? Well, the answer is, um, again, Congress will go through and is in the process of going through an elaborate analysis of whether the existing law is strong enough to be sure that the, the top state official is ordered to do the certificate or whether there's another federal cause of action. I personally am for an additional federal cause of action to make it really clear, but I think there is reluctance amongst a number of Republican senators, conservatives, that creating new federal causes of action is an encroachment that shouldn't take place. But I do think that that is a decision that will be made uh, probably within the confines of Congress after hearing from a lot of experts on both sides of that issue. Let me ask you about this um, sort of arcane legal theory that is um, gaining traction on the right, the independent state legislature doctrine that argues that state legislatures have unlimited independent power to set rules without review by state courts. The conservative lawyer, Michael Luddig, who testified in the select committee hearings, called this theory part of the quote, Republican blueprint to steal the 2024 election. Now, I know you think that this theory is legally unsound, but it doesn't necessarily stop people. Is this another threat that must be guarded against? Well, it's a question. And again, the threat comes from uncertainty. So the Constitution gives state legislatures the power to set the time, place, and manner of elections. Uh, What uh, that could be clarified to mean in the Electoral Count Act is that the state legislature can do whatever it wants in terms of how presidential electors are selected, but it has to do it in a law and it has to do it before the election. And you can't change the rules of the game after the election. So a a state legislature under the independent state legislature doctrine could pass a law that says, we're not really going to pay attention to the popular vote we, the state legislature, are going to decide who the electors are. And I think that would be completely constitutional. The infirmity that maybe needs some clarification is trying to ignore the popular vote and substitute the legislature's judgment on who the electors should be. There is a lawyer from Ohio State University who argues that actually the Supreme Court has already weighed in on this question in Bush v. Gore where it is said that it is the popular vote of the will of the people that will reign supreme in this case, not uh, any any act that the legislature passes in the intervening time period. Well, I happen to agree with that analysis that, that what Bush versus Gore said is you can't change the rules of the game after it's been played. But the independent state legislature doctrine is a little bit 
broader than even that. So, so there's a real question, I think, that at least four justices of the Supreme Court have suggested they would like to opine about about this question. Um, and could, you know, there is a case that is before the court that they may even grant cert to uh, related to North Carolina uh, and a redistricting effort. If the court were to weigh in on this issue, how do you, knowing the constitution of the current court, think they would come down? The court in the redistricting cases in the North Carolina case you mentioned is a redistricting case, has said on numerous occasions uh, that, in fact, the state courts can review a legislature's redistricting plan. So even although there is a certain degree of appeal, intellectual appeal, to at least two, but maybe four conservative justices, um, I think that in the long run, they know and recognize that state courts do have a review power over what a legislature does. And without that review power, the basic system of checks and balances uh, gets thrown into disarray. It has been reported that Senator Susan Collins of Maine and Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia have been leading bipartisan discussions to reform the ECA. As of this month, the group seems very close to a deal. Do you view a modernization and update of the Electoral Count Act as mission critical before 2024? Yes, just because uh, 2020 showed how uh, the Electoral Count Act can be used for nefarious purposes. So it did point up that uh, a statement from Congress clarifying the provisions we've talked about really is mission critical. Does the controversy around the Electoral Count Act undermine confidence in the Electoral College itself? You know, I don't think so. The the Among the reforms that are being discussed is not changes to the Electoral College and the way that it operates. Uh, I think what criticism of the Electoral Count Act shows is the Electoral Count Act was written under different circumstances uh, in the 1880s. In 1973, on the original firing line, William F. Buckley Jr. hosted a discussion entitled The Implications of Watergate. Buckley was actually asked about reforms to the office of the presidency in the aftermath of Watergate. It seems to me that uh, the Watergate mentality is something that is attracted under two circumstances. One, to power, uh, and secondly, to a threat to power. If, uh, if, you have, if you live in a society in which uh, lawlessness becomes intellectually fashionable, as it was in this country during the last 10 years, you beget, I think, a counter-countercultural lawlessness, of which Watergate is an example. So none of, none, of, none of these paper reforms, however commendable they are from other points of view, will, in my judgment, give us the kind of security that we would like to have against future Watergates. None of these paper reforms, however commendable they are, from other points of view, in my judgment, will give us the kind of security we would like to have against future Watergates. So can paper reforms in, in our situation now fix future unmerited challenges to our elections? The paper changes now can help fix some of the challenges that we face. What, what this always comes down to is that uh, individuals matter. 
And you saw that very much in 2020. You've seen it in the witnesses before the committee who stood up to the pressure. You saw it with Mike Pence. At the end of the day, this does come down to individuals fulfilling their oaths and their roles under the Constitution. You've talked a lot, Ben, about the uncertainties in the law, and we've gotten into a lot of the details of the law. But big picture pulling back, how vulnerable do you think our democracy actually is as we go into 2022 and more importantly, 2024, our next presidential contest? That you have to ask the question and that we've had this discussion tonight shows us that there are vulnerabilities that, uh, at least in, in my professional life, we have never before faced. And so in that sense, uh, we are in a, in a different, more dangerous place than we've been for a considerable amount of time. In I your can, lifetime? In my lifetime, yeah. In the 20th century? Well, I mean, I think Watergate was very tumultuous, which was in my lifetime, just to, just to be clear. Uh, I think a lot of the activities around World War II were certainly tumultuous. I think this country has faced tumultuous times before, but I think this is an historic one. And I don't know where that comes in the, in the pantheon in history uh, until you know the end result. Um, but I do think that the laws matter and the people we elect to office matter. And as you pointed out, there are a lot of uh, people who do not believe in the accuracy of elections who are running for office. And that's a huge potential vulnerability. I've heard you say that our greatest crisis is that some 30% of the country doesn't believe that our elections are accurate. And ultimately that we can't sustain democracy if that many people don't trust the electoral process. What are your final thoughts on how to restore faith among voters ahead of the next presidential election? I think that the issue of people not believing in our elections and how uh, divided we are, how polarized is a real problem. And I think that the real uh, crisis comes from red America not talking to blue America and blue America not talking to red America. And so I think that the solution to the crisis probably isn't a national solution. Uh, because I think that's a fairly poisonous atmosphere right now. And then, in fact, it's a community uh, solution. And the more work that can be done on the local level uh, is really, really important. In the direct elections context, um, part of a nonprofit group that I'm co-chair of, we are uh, setting up meetings in local communities, the ones that are most contended in elections, where we want to bring the leaders of the community all across the political spectrum, from business uh, to, to faith leaders, to educators, to civic organizations, to talk with their election administrators about how elections are run about the safeguards that do exist in our elections. And by that, it will, number one, we hope, increase faith in our elections, and number two, create 
a group of leaders who, having studied the way elections are actually put on, will vouch for their accuracy. And I think that that the Electoral Count Act reform is really important, but I also think that community engagement between the red forces and the blue forces is equally important. Let me just ask you a quick follow-up. You know, in polling of self-identified Republican primary voters in Arizona, I was surprised to see early on that Arizona Republican primary voters actually believed that their state had administrated the election law fairly, but that it was the national fraud that had potentially been precipitated that contributed to the big lie. Meanwhile, the national narrative was that the Arizona Republican Party (laughs) is the one that was fussing with the elections. So I guess my question is, in the context of this polarization that has happened nationally, even if people have faith in their local administration of elections, how are they to believe that other states operated fairly as well? Well, I think by the same sorts of, of programs of bringing together enough people on the local level, because you you would get cross communications between states in, in that case. But you you put your finger on a really interesting phenomenon that we're seeing, which is people saying, well, maybe my elections were okay, but those other folks have done it wrong. So that goes to uh, programs to help election administrators communicate more about their own elections and their programs and to create uh, a greater educational uh, program about elections and their accuracy. So if you had to put your money on 2024, do we pull through? Yes. Ben Ginsburg, thank you for coming to Firing Line. Thanks, Margaret. Thanks, Margaret. 